Hello! From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, and this is Encyclopedia Womanica. Today we're talking about one of the Union's most successful spies during the American Civil War. While keeping up appearances with Southern high society, she covertly managed a network of spies in the capital of the Confederacy. Let's talk about Elizabeth Van Loo. Elizabeth Van Loo was born on October 12, 1818, in Richmond, Virginia. Despite being born in the South, both of Elizabeth's parents were from the North. Her mother, Eliza Louise Baker, was born in Philadelphia, and her father, John Van Loo, was born in New York. John was a hardware salesman, peddling everyday household items. While mundane on the surface, the business was very lucrative, and as a result, The Van Loo family lived in a large mansion in a high-class neighborhood in Richmond. Despite their prominence in the Richmond community, Elizabeth's parents chose to have her educated in Quaker schools in the North. It was there that her abolitionist views began to form. After school, Elizabeth returned to Virginia to live with her recently widowed mother. Much of Elizabeth and her mother's lives were underscored by a delicate balance of keeping up appearances with Southern high society and upholding Union ideals. Like most rich Virginians, Elizabeth's family enslaved people. But after Elizabeth's father died, the Van Loo family worked around Virginian law to free them. Throughout the 1850s and 60s, those the family enslaved functioned more as servants. They were allowed to live elsewhere and earned an income for their labor. When the Civil War broke out and Richmond was named the capital of the Confederacy, the delicate balance grew even more precarious. Elizabeth made her first foray into espionage when Libby Prison opened just outside of Richmond. The prison was infamous for its horrible conditions. Sympathetic to the Union prisoners inside, Elizabeth and her mother convinced the local Confederate general to let them bring food to the prisoners. They masked their request under the guise of female benevolence. In actuality, Elizabeth and her mother were organizing. They passed messages to the prisoners in a custard dish that included a secret compartment. They hid messages in books and bribed the guards to give the prisoners more food and water. They even organized several successful prisoner escapes, often hiding the fugitives in their own home. All of these efforts were funded with their personal family fortune. Elizabeth and Eliza's benevolence didn't go unnoticed. Confederate neighbors were critical of their interest in the Union soldiers. In her diary, Elizabeth wrote, I have had brave men shake their fingers in my face and say terrible things. We had threats of being driven away, threats of fire, and threats of death. In an attempt to counteract these suspicions, Elizabeth and her mother arranged public outings with Confederate soldiers and prison wardens. In December of 1863, General Benjamin Butler formally recruited Elizabeth as a Union spy. Elizabeth agreed and quickly became the head of General Butler's spy network. She assembled a group of 12 agents to collect information on the Confederates. One of Elizabeth's most valuable spies was a woman her family previously enslaved, Mary Jane Richards. If you haven't already, you can hear Mary Jane's full story in our episode from last Friday. 
Elizabeth Spiring passed coded information to both General Butler and General Ulysses S. Grant. Each message was written in colorless liquid that turned black when exposed to milk. General Grant later told Elizabeth, you have sent me the most valuable information received from Richmond during the war. Some of Elizabeth's missions were more successful than others. In January of 1864, she orchestrated a Union ambush on a prisoner convoy. Unfortunately, her plan was foiled by a mole within the Union Army. But Elizabeth wasn't stymied for long. The next month, Elizabeth helped 100 Union officers escape via an underground tunnel from Libby Prison. It was one of the largest and most daring prison breaks of the Civil War. Fewer than half of the prisoners were recaptured, marking a hugely successful mission. When the war concluded, Elizabeth was publicly lauded by General Grant and other Union officers. But back in Richmond, her bravery was seen as betrayal. With her personal fortune exhausted and her social status destroyed, Elizabeth was an outsider. When Grant became president in 1869, he appointed Elizabeth postmaster of Richmond. She held the role for eight years. During that time, she was known for hiring diverse employees, including women and African-Americans who were previously excluded from such positions. When Rutherford B. Hayes was later elected president, Elizabeth lost her post. At that point, in her 70s, Elizabeth was left with few resources. In desperation, she asked one of the Union officers she'd helped during the war, the grandson of the famous Paul Revere, if he could help her financially. He agreed and Elizabeth subsisted on his relief and the contributions of other Union soldiers for the remainder of her life. In September of 1900, at the age of 81, Elizabeth Van Loo died. Despite her commitment to the cause, Elizabeth resented being labeled a spy. She wrote, I do not know how they can call me a spy serving my own country within its recognized borders. For my loyalty, am I now to be branded as a spy, by my own country for which I was willing to lay down my life? Is that honorable or honest? All month, we're talking about spies. For more on why we're doing what we're doing, check out our newsletter, Womanica Weekly. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Encyclopedia Womanica. Special thanks to Liz Kaplan, my favorite sister and co-creator. Talk to you tomorrow. Before you go, I want to tell you about another show I think you might like. Life Jolt from CBC Podcasts examines the lives of women navigating Canada's correctional system. Host Rosemary Green, who spent five years in prison herself, guides listeners through tough issues like solitary confinement and the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in Canadian prisons. The series gives unprecedented access to the inmates who call the Grand Valley Institution for Women, a federal penitentiary, home, and examines the resiliency and potential of women who've survived prison. Find Life Jolt wherever you get your podcasts.